This is a Federal News Network podcast. Even an organization as big and armed as the United States Navy doesn't take the ransomware threat for granted. For how it's dealing, earlier I spoke with the principal cyber advisor in the office of the Navy Chief Information Officer, Chris Cleary. All right, let's begin with talking about ransomware. First of all, has the Navy been hit by it? Has any gotten through? Not that you've paid ransoms. Or do you see it happening, but you're able to kind of fend it off for the most part? So for the most part, the Navy or the Marine Corps has not been subject to a ransomware attack. It's one of those things we pay very, very close attention to because I think where ransomware is much more impactful to both the Navy and the Marine Corps is how it impacts the things that we depend on that we cannot control. And if you use the uh, Colonial Pipeline as an example, you know, the Colonial Pipeline pushed fuel around all up and down the East Coast. There's lots of organizations that have dependencies on those fuel. And you may not be able to respond to the attack per se because it's not in your backyard. It's not in your AOR that gives you the authorities to be able to respond to, let's say, as a naval organization. The Navy, you know, again, luckily enough, has not directly been impacted by a ransomware thing. It's something that we are keenly attuned to, particularly where those kind of ransomware attacks, which have been through the lens of ransomware. Hey, I've locked your information up. You pay me an amount and I will unlock it and we'll both get back on a business. Where we're most afraid of is it's when the ransomware attack comes with no intent whatsoever of even accepting a ransom. It's a move to lock your information up and permanently degrade it. And we think if the Navy or the Marine Corps were to see that kind of an attack pointed at us specifically, it would be just that. Hey, we're not here looking for money. We're here to degrade your ability to operate as a naval force. So as fleets are deployed and operate around the world and they get ship husbanding and supplying and so forth at various places and by various suppliers around the world, then one of the big worries is that those suppliers would be hit and therefore you could be stranded for three days trying to get the fuel into the ship where it should have taken 12 hours or something. And fuel would be the most obvious one. And now that we've seen the Colonial Pipeline attack, we've been concerned of that. But the joke was 10 years ago, if I wanted to keep a ship pierside, I just need to make sure that Coca-Cola didn't show up. <laughs> because even getting stores, even getting supplies, food stuff, you know, repair parts, you know, if I can just prevent FedEx from showing up or a husbanding agent that would be bringing you just food. And if the food doesn't show up on the pier, the ship might not be able to get underway because it needs that food to go be at sea for, you know, X amount of time. So those are the things that we used to joke about 10 or 15 years ago. Now we're seeing it come into fruition for the ways that our adversaries can really, no kidding, target the things that we depend on quickly. And fuel and power, power, it's a little less relevant for ships at sea because, you know, we generate our own power and sustainment. But, but for the things that push that stuff around, you know, fuel depots, fuel is pumped too. And then if I lose power uh, or you're able to do some sort of ransomware attack on other things that I depend on, you know, I may not be able to move fuel around. So it's an incredibly complicated problem with a lot of critical dependencies. And the Navy's sort of going through the wickets right now of sort of not only identifying a resource or a thing, but what are all the things that that thing depend on? And then, you know, the spider's web of critical dependencies and a way an adversary can particularly get into that to disrupt it. And malware, as we're finding, is a very attractive tactic for an adversary because it's relatively easy to employ and relatively, once it's in and executed, pretty complicated to get out. And with respect to the Navy's own information systems and the ransomware threat or any cyber threat, there is always the phishing vector, which vexes pretty much every organization. What are some of the practices you have to make sure that employees, sailors and civilians are on guard and that they don't click on that thing? 
So the Navy and Marine Corps are pretty diligent in the way that they train their workforce in you know, not attempting to click on things. Now, granted, there are some things we put in place that make it challenging to click on things. You know, there'll be a lot of warnings, don't click, or you know, you're not allowed to click. A lot of executables and files are turned off. So some of those things are just not possible. Cross-site scripting is always something that could get an adversary. And we do take measures, whether through our red teams. As an example, when I started this job as the chief information security officer, better part of two years ago, working with Aaron Weiss, the CIO, we did do a spear phishing exercise within the secretariat. So every once in a while, we will exercise spear phishing campaigns through our red teams. So we commissioned one of our red teams to do this specifically for us. And they went off and they'll conduct a pretty sophisticated spear phishing campaign all the way down to what other people refer to as whaling, which is I'm not just sending out a wide net. I have a particular narrative that's going to target a particular individual. You know, I'm going to make this sound like its daughter or his wife or a coworker or something that would be, oh yeah, this is so-and-so. Oh, and they sent me something. Click. You know, we have a training process that comes in behind this a lot of times you'll be informed that you've done spearfishing campaigns. There's a lot of companies that provide these sort of services commercially. And it's really all about awareness and just bringing awareness to your workforce that any single individual within the Department of the Navy could be an aim point of an adversary to inject malware into our systems. And so it's really, again, education, training, and awareness are the ways that we mostly focus on trying to get our hands around this. There is an interesting vector that that could happen, that kind of personalized email to individuals, because the military does have a practice of sending stories about different service members to hometown websites. I almost said hometown newspapers, but those are mostly disappeared. <laughs> but it's possible to find out personal information about people from public sources that then can be crafted into a dangerous phishing email. Oh, it's easier than that. I mean, just look at the social media these days. I just have to go into somebody's LinkedIn profile or Facebook account to pull down almost anything that I would need to craft a plausible spear phishing email directed at any individual or any individual family's members. So that's another one that when you look at, so now you go to additional dependencies, you know, what about your computer you use from home for teleworking? And if I've spear phished your wife or your daughter, and they've downloaded malware onto a computer that you depend on. And that was actually a concern when we started the COVID pandemic because we allowed a lot of employees to begin to do work through personally owned computers because we just didn't have the bandwidth, the throughput, the government furnished equipment to give everybody a private government furnished computer to take home. And then you had VPN constraints and firewall limitations. So we had to sort of accept a lot of risk to enable working from home. Again, this kind of goes back into more of my days as the CISO working for Aaron Weiss. But there are some pretty good success stories that both the Navy and the Marine Corps would take a little bit of a victory lap on the way that we enabled our workforce to work from home and actually the relatively small amount of incidents that we had associated with that. And of course, there are other vectors into systems, old-fashioned hacking. My question then is, regardless of how some malware could come in, what types of, I hate to use the word playbooks, it sounds like a cliche, but what sorts of procedures do you have that get invoked such that you can remediate the situation when it's discovered? And I guess that would include discovery itself. I don't think that the Navy and the Marine Corps are too different than any other security service provider who do these types and functions. I would use kind of like a fire department analogy. The Navy and the Marine Corps' network defense centers are pretty sophisticated, and they are very good at what they do. And when the alarm goes off and the fire department responds, and if those organizations are the fire department, 
They know exactly what to do when the bell goes off. They know exactly what they do when they get on location. And if you look at SolarWinds, Log4J, the myriad of these other ones, the Navy and the Marine Corps, Fleet Cyber, Marfor Cyber, do an amazing job responding to the fire alarm. It's the things that we need to approve on that happen before and after. You know, a fire department can respond to a building on fire and put the fire out, but could that fire have been prevented through other means? Did it happen because of an electrical fault or was it arson? And then you go through, you know, that whole litany of ways that people can do things. So the adversary is getting better at better at what they do. In a lot of ways, they look at how we do business and they swim up as far upstream as they need to to be successful. That's exactly what happened with solar winds. You know, and lots of people understand the story now, but the adversary just injected, you know, we'll call it an attack, an exploitation in an organization that knew they were trusted when they pushed out their updates. So when I saw this update coming from I or whoever, oh, it's trusted, it's signed, it's coming from the manufacturer, it's coming from the developer. This is a trusted thing. I'm going to bring it to my environment and I'm going to execute it. And that's where they figured out how to exploit a trusted relationship. So the adversaries who are good at these things, again, that's why you know spear phishing is really you're counting on somebody to be negligent or not paying attention or be susceptible to click on something. It's not guaranteed that you're going to click on that, but you throw enough out there, and that's why they call it spear phishing. You throw enough of these out, somebody's going to click. Or if I figure out the way adversaries do things, I'm going to study it long enough to determine where that weakness in the system resides. And unfortunately, to most major organizations, the weakness does not reside inside the organization. It resides outside of their organizations. And this is kind of the new world we're living in. So once again, it's the way we respond to these things internally is pretty good. High marks across the board. It's the things that we can't control outside the organization that scares me. And with respect to cloud adoption, which the Navy, of course, has been a big embracer of cloud, does that complicate a little bit the continuous discovery of where your data sources are that need to be protected just because multiple instances of databases and software applications exist because of the cloud? So how do you maintain that visibility? And maybe that gets into the cooperation between network operation centers and cybersecurity operation centers. Sure. And I think you're seeing the maturity of that process happen right now. The Navy has been a large adopter of cloud, as have the other services. The Army has taken a few victory laps just recently on their cloud initiatives. The Navy, although our adoption of the cloud has been very good, you know, there's still some things that give us critical dependencies of the cloud. You know, it still has to be connected to the cloud. Ships at sea, bandwidth administrations, latency doesn't always make connecting to the cloud as efficient and as practical and as convenient as it is when you're on a land-based environment. And then what people sometimes fail to do is think, oh, I've put it in the cloud. I'm secure now. Well, every vulnerability, everything that I needed to do when I host that information locally are things that I have to be aware of even though I'm hosting it remotely. There are initiatives underway. A lot of those cloud providers provide services around securing your information. But the full understanding of that cloud environment, actually, to be honest, one of the places that the services are struggling with is having visibility inside of those environments where they can get access to or observe what's happening with their data, particularly in insecurity situations. Some cloud providers have sort of said, hey, you know, your access to this cloud ends at the waterline. You don't think safety deposit box is at a bank. You kind of give it to the teller. They put it in a box, and then you see that box carried and put in the vault. You're never really given access to the vault per se. Well, who else is in the vault? What's going on in the vault? You know, can I see my box and which row and column my safety deposit box is? And some banks will let you in. Most banks won't. That kind of analogy, even though I'm putting my information in a very secure environment, I'm putting a lot of trust and confidence in the providers of that environment 
that they've built, you know, resilient, secure, reliable, redundant, blah, blah, blah. All the things that the cloud has always been known for. But our adversaries know our information is going to those environments, so they're getting better at going to it. Again, it's a continuing game. And I think when we look at security or warfare, for that matter, it's the perpetuation of the problem. You know, it's a move, counter move. And things like cloud have enabled resiliency and redundancy and, and availability, well, adversaries are going to start moving into those environments and start exploiting those things or degrading our ability to get access to that information or all the classic CIA triangle, you know, confidentiality, integrity, availability. Well, that game has now just moved into the cloud and, you know, move, counter move. And help me understand the worldwide nature of this, because on the one hand, you hear that military organizations and other highly secure organizations demand CONUS-based cloud resources. No, you can't use the Chinese version of the cloud, Mr. Large Commercial Cloud Provider. But on the other hand, there is the reach-back limitation sometimes from distant spots. And so it might be that you need local storage, not local like shipboard, but local in a nation. So how does that balance in terms of, you know, the need for CONUS, but then sometimes the need for nearby? So cloud availability is no different than any other resource that the Navy or Marine Corps would need when they were deployed. We use fuel a lot. If you look at what's going on in Hawaii with Red Hill and maybe our inability to get access to that fuel depot and now having to transit fuel from other places to ships in that area, ultimately data has to come from somewhere and go to somewhere. The jump-off points, whether they be local and, say, the the Indo-Pacific region or everything's being pushed through satellites from data centers on the west coast of Hawaii or wherever, that is just a connectivity problem. So this is, again, where the Navy has to be a little more attuned to where information is coming from and how it gets there because, again, our limitation to that information is more easily degradable because of all the other things that we depend on that are maybe targetable, whether it be a satellite a cable that's taking information from the west coast of the United States to Hawaii, and then it hits a satellite, and it's going to bounce around a bunch of different, you know, C5 ISR systems to get downloaded to a ship in the South China Sea. You know, that kill chain are things that our adversaries understand, and they begin to target those things. You know, unfortunately, the way that we plan to fight in most fights is in very comms, restricted, limited environments. So what information do you already have organic that you may not get another connection to, quote-unquote, the cloud at sea in a warfighting environment. And, and you may not want to because there's a whole targeting thing and MCON and the way that people track signals, whole other story for another day. But when the balloon goes up and the fight's on, a lot of times the Navy and the Marine Corps play to say, hey, we are now in a comms-constrained environment. We're only going to be able to use the information that we have organic to us. Uh, and it's kind of the way that we condition ourselves to fight through those situations. And then if something bad does happen, whether because of cyber or for just whatever technical reason may happen, sometimes databases and data sets get corrupted, just maybe give us an overview of the recovery procedures and policies you have in place. A lot of those are specific on the, did I lose a communications channel? Is my communications up? This The data is not available. So it's kind of hard to say there's a policy place in the ability to restore services. But when you look at things like damage control on a ship, culturally, that is the way that our mindset goes, that you have to be able to fight hurt. And actually, one of the new initiatives that we're pulling through right now really maps back to this idea of resiliency. And resiliency is sort of a, you know, you could say survivability, fight hurt, restoring of services. Those are the things that we need to improve upon because those are the things that keep us in the fight particularly when we're talking about information and information and data is kind of the weapon system now. If that information is degraded, I don't have a particular comms path, 
Project Overmatch actually is an initiative that the Navy has been very adamant on. The, the Chief of Naval Operations is it's kind of his brainchild, uh, which is basically saying, what are other means and methods of communications we have at sea available to us, and how can I push any data through any available comms channel to connect ship A to ship B? Because acknowledging that information is power, and we have to ensure that we have availability of that information even in contested environments, and that's one of the newest initiatives of the Navy. Yeah, that idea of contested environments can really be anywhere then. It's not simply because of where the Navy might need to fire cannons somewhere over the horizon, but it can be a contested environment, can be at the Pentagon nowadays. Correct. With our suppliers, with our developers, with our families. You know, there's lots of ways of delivering effects. We speak in the words of delivering effects as kind of the jargon used around the Pentagon. And there's lots of ways our adversaries can deliver effects to change the way that decision makers make decisions. And I think that's the new game that we're in right now. You know, data information is power. So if I can degrade an adversary's ability to get information, I can change their calculus on the way that they'll make decisions or try to employ forces. And and this is this left of boom kind of fight. Uh, There's lots of ways I can hold you at risk now. Information we've seen is becoming more and more of a way that you hold your adversaries at risk. Chris Cleary is Principal Cyber Advisor in the Office of the Navy Chief Information Officer. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way, not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about. As a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.